0: So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 42. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 4. If you're using the pew Bible, it's found on page 602. And the words that I'll read are going to sound very familiar because Nathan just read them, these same verses, just a few moments ago. These verses that we heard in our, in our gospel reading. And Matthew quotes these verses and explicitly applies them to Jesus. It says that these verses describe Jesus. And this is really another example of the supernatural nature of biblical prophecy. These verses that I'm about to read were written 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years. And this is just one of more than 40 prophecies. And we've looked at many of them already. Prophecies in the book of Isaiah pointing toward Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus. And that's not even counting the ones that are pointing toward his second coming. And there are many of those as well. And I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Prior to about 75 years ago, biblical scholars, they all would have assumed that these prophecies that we read in in Isaiah, they weren't original. They weren't written by Isaiah. They were added, after the fact, by Christians. And the reason why they say it is because they so clearly point to Jesus. And they could have said that. They could, could say that because... Prior to about 75 years ago, the oldest manuscript that we had of the book of Isaiah came from about 1,000 A.D., so about 1,000 years after the time of Jesus. So there's plenty of time for these texts to to be modified, to be changed by Christians and add these prophecies. But that all changed. That all changed in, in 1947. You know what was significant about 1947? The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was one particular scroll called the Isaiah Scroll that scholars have dated this scroll to about 100 years before the birth of Christ. 100 years before. And you know what? It's identical to what the book of Isaiah we have now. It has all the same prophecies about Christ. 100 years before he was born. This just proves that Isaiah is a divinely inspired book. And it's prophesied about Jesus. And these prophecies point to Jesus. So hear now these words pointing to Jesus. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. You know the word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. And Father, I pray now that we will hear from you. Father, I pray that I will get out of the way. And Father, your words will come through and your words will bless us. Your words will change us. Father, as we hear about our Savior, as we hear about his gentleness, his kindness, how a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I pray, Father, that you will encourage us. If there are any here who are hurting, if there are any here that are just feeling that I've blown it so much that I can't come, Lord, I pray that we will forget about that and we will come. Jesus accepts sinners. That's who he came for. That's who he calls. And Father, I pray that you will be pleased, you will be glorified by this preaching, the reading and preaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. When I was in college, I had this poster on my bedroom wall, and it was a, it was a picture of a, of a Native American, American Indian, a very strong-looking man. And the caption said, nothing is as strong as gentleness, and nothing is as gentle as real strength. Nothing is as strong as gentleness, nothing is as gentle as real strength. And I wasn't a Christian at the time, but there was something about this statement that struck me. I just knew it was true. I knew that gentleness and, and, and strength, are not opposites, but rather they're, they're different sides of the same coin. See, real gentleness requires great strength. And strength, it requires strength of self-control, strength of character. See, a contradiction between strength and gentleness is the false dichotomy. And we see a lot of false dichotomies. There's a false dichotomy between the supposed dichotomy between truth and gentleness or or truth and kindness or, or, or truth and love. See, some mistakenly think that if I'm speaking the truth, then that gives me permission to be a wrecking ball. If I'm speaking as long as truth's on my side, I don't need to be gentle. I don't need to be compassionate. I don't have to worry about how I wield this truth. And we know that truth, in many cases, wrongly handled, can be just as dangerous. can be just as destructive as error. See, this is not gentleness. This is not truth. This is, this is harshness and bullying disguised as strength, disguised as truth. Now, the opposite approach is also uh, false, to sacrifice truth for the sake of kindness, or some say for the sake of love. But it doesn't, doesn't work. It's not kind. It's not loving. It's not gentle if we ignore truth. This is simply cowardly. This is weakness described as gentleness. Another aspect of this false dichotomy is a so-called contradiction between mercy and justice. Some think that true justice has no room for mercy. And this is the attitude we see in the, in the character Inspector Javert from the story Les Miserables for those who, who know that. Javert's single-minded pursuit of justice at any cost actually leads to injustice. And likewise, there's a form of mercy that is not only unjust, but is actually unmerciful. For example, when when a government will take money from people through taxes, hence unjust, and attempt to help those in need by distributing this money, oftentimes in a way that actually hurts the recipients. It fosters dependence. It keeps them enslaved to poverty. And this is not merciful. This is actually cruel. But God's chosen servant... The Lord Jesus Christ, referenced in this passage, he gets this balance perfect. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how this is done. We're going to look at how Christ strikes this perfect balance, what it looks like. And and we're going to look at how this perfect balance kept by Christ actually benefits us, his people, how it comforts us. And last, we're going to see how we as God's people, as those who are united to Christ by faith, how we can emulate the Lord and strike this, this perfect balance where we're both strong and gentle, where we display both love and truth, where we can show both mercy and justice. So that's our outline. First, we're going to look at Christ. Then we're going to look at the benefits of Christ. Then Christ's example to us. So let's jump right into this passage, see how it describes Christ. And the first thing we should notice looking at this passage is the Trinitarian nature of this very first verse. It tells us God the Father, he's speaking in this verse, and he's speaking of his servant. And Matthew tells us that the servant is God the Son, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father says to the Son, I will put my spirit upon him. This is the Holy Spirit. So all three persons of the Trinity here are displayed at work in this verse. But not only do we see the members of the Trinity, but we are given a glimpse of, of the inter-Trinitarian relationship. The Father says to the Son, Behold my servant whom I uphold. And here we see that although the Son is God, although he is divine, He's is the second person of the Trinity, we see that he is not independent of the Father. The verse actually says that he is upheld by the Father. So what does this mean? What does it mean He's upheld by the Father? Well, it does not mean that the Son is inferior to the Father. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, they are co-equal. They are co-eternal. They are co-sovereign in their essence. The Father is the fullness of God. The Son is the fullness of God. The Holy Spirit is the fullness of God. The fullness of God is present in each person of the Trinity. But in a sense, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he is upheld by the Father. He is dependent on the Father. The three persons of the Trinity, they are one God. There is a distinction among the persons of the Trinity, but there is not division. There is not independence. And there is a perfect unity among the three persons. And verse 1 continues. It says, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And here we see the perfect love. The perfect love the Father has for the Son. And this perfect love is reciprocal. The Son has perfect love for the Father. In fact, many scholars see this mutual love between the father and the son as, as a complete and, and encompassing their entire being. So they are loving with their entire being. The father loves the son with his entire being. The son loves the father with his entire being. And this actually makes sense. What is, what is the great commandment? The great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is basically to love with our entire being. We are to love God with our entire being. Now, as finite creatures, we can't love like this. We can't do this. But God can. God God is infinite. He can love, and he does love with his entire being. And the being of God the Father is God. The being of God the Son is God. And this love between the two, the the, the encompassing their whole being, this is also God. And the love between them, this is the third person of the Trinity. This is the Holy Spirit who is acting between them, who is, who is the love between them. As we've said in our Confession of Faith in, in the Nicene Creed of the Holy Spirit, it says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So what naturally proceeds from the Father and the Son? It's the mutual love that they have for one another. And this love is the Holy Spirit. And Scripture tells us God is love. God is love. The Holy Spirit is that love. And this Trinitarian interaction in this verse is very similar to that we see at, at Jesus' baptism. Hear these words from Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, which talk of Jesus' baptism. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. I will put my Spirit on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, in whom my soul delights. See, even if Matthew didn't explicitly tell us in chapter 15 that these verses apply to Jesus, we could see the connection in Jesus' baptism. We see that it all fits together. All scripture fits together. And it points toward Christ. Lastly, in this verse, we see the mission of the servant. We've seen the mission of the Messiah. We've seen the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says he will bring forth justice to the nations. See, the word that's, that's translated here is justice. We see this three times in this passage. We see it in verse three and, and verse, verses 3 and verses 4. The Hebrew word is mishpat. And this word actually conveys a legal sense. It's justice with respect to laws, with respect to a judge, with respect to a legal system. Now, those of you who've been here for a while and heard some of the sermons and know Reformed theology, this should bring to mind something. This should bring to mind justification. See, justification is a legal declaration, a legal declaration that a sinner who believes in Christ is not condemned, but rather he is declared not guilty. He is declared just solely on the merit of Christ, not on himself, mishpat. But mishpat could also mean Executing judgment, making things right, setting things in order. So you remember the context of the original intended audience of this prophecy. These were God's people who were suffering in exile under the Babylonians, under Gentiles. And what would they expect to be the justice to the nations? See The the word here for nations and Gentiles is the same word. So what would they expect this judgment to be, this justice to look like? Well, they would expect it to be punishment. Punishment on the people who subjugated them, the people who have harmed them, the people who have kept them down, who have, who have forced them to relocate, brought them out of their promised land, blasphemed their God. This would be their idea of justice. This would be their idea of justice. Moving on to, to verse two, verses two and three, they describe an, an unexpected aspect of this servant. See, God's people under exile, they were looking for a deliverer. They needed a hero. They needed a champion. They were looking for someone who could overthrow their oppressors. Someone not unlike what we see in the book of Judges. right? They wanted a Samson. They wanted a, a Gideon. They wanted a Jephthah. They wanted justice. They needed someone strong who could give them the justice they sought. Which means they would have been very taken aback by verse 2. Verse 2 says, He will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the streets. Does this sound like the, the, the judges? Does this sound like Samson? All right, can you picture Samson like this? Samson who very much made himself known by, by tearing the gate off the city and carrying it 20 miles or slaughtering uh, a thousand uh, Philistines. No. Jesus, Jesus was quiet. Jesus was humble. This is what the servant of, of the God, Jesus Christ, he's not like what we would expect of a hero, what we expect from a deliverer. Jesus doesn't lift his voice. He does not demand to be heard. He does not promote himself. And this highlights the humility of the servant. And and this should really bring to mind a description that Paul gives of the servant in Philippians 2. Listen to these words that, that Paul describes Jesus. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord, to the glory of the Father. See, Christ doesn't demand his rights. Christ does not promote himself. Christ is obedient to the Father. He trusts the Father in all situations for the outcome. See, Jesus Jesus is is God in the flesh, but he doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. Now, this doesn't mean he gave up his deity. That that would be impossible. He never gave up his deity. He always always was, always will be God. He always had these divine attributes. But what he gave up, was divine prerogatives. He gave up the divine comforts. He gave up the benefits that he had of being God. I think probably the closest illustration to this is if you've ever seen that, that television show, Undercover Boss. Anyone familiar with Undercover Boss? You know, this is where the CEO of the company, he'll go work in a very low position, an entry-level position, to, to see what's going on. And he's still the boss. He still has the same position, the same authority, but what he's done is he's temporarily given up the benefits, he's given up the comforts, he's given up the perks of being the boss, and he's taken on the, the duties of this entry-level position. Well, this is what we see in Christ. Verse 2 here shows us Christ's humility. Now, verse 3, which I think is really the, 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 probably the, the heart of this passage, this, I think, also gives us another unexpected aspect of Christ. Uh, this shows us Christ's gentleness. And again, take a look at verse 3. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So what does this mean? What is this bruised reed that he's talking about? What is this faintly burning wick? Well, these are, are, are word pictures to describe believers, true believers. And the word picture is to show Christ's gentleness and his tenderness to believers, true believers, who are hurting. See, the bruised reed here is a picture of the Christian who has been bruised. Bruised by his own sin. Bruised by the consequences of that sin. Bruised by the consequences other people's sin on him. Bruised by just life in this fallen world. And I think each one of us, each one of us at some point, or even now, fall into that category of being a bruised reed. This is the person who is weak. This is the person who is hurting. This is the person who is, is, in some sense, struggling just to take another step. The weight of their sin, the consequences of of poor choices, poor choices that they have made, the effects of other people's poor choices, have just beat these people down. In the faintly burning wick here, this is a picture of the weak faith of the bruised reeds. They are Christians. They believe in Christ. But their faith is so weak that that it's compared to this this faintly burning candle that that there's just a little spark there and it's producing more smoke than light and it's it's on the verge of fading away. That's the faith of these Christians. That's what the burning wick points to. Now, if Christ is the righteous judge, as we see in verse 1, that will bring forth justice to the nations, then justice demands punishment. Punishment for sinners. And these bruised reeds, they are sinners. And these bruised reeds know that they are sinners. And they know that they deserve punishment. And this knowledge even weakens their faith, this smoldering faith even more. And there is a temptation. There is a temptation for the bruised reeds. For each one of us, when we are bruised reeds, there is a temptation for us to stay away from Christ. To stay away from this righteous judge because we're fearful. We're fearful of being broken. We're fearful that what little faith we have will be extinguished. And even if, even if we instinctively know, because we, are, uh, we have genuine saving faith, we know that coming to, to Christ is our only hope, we still fear that this encounter will destroy us. But here's the beautiful reality of this verse. The beautiful reality is, is that Christ will not break the bruised reed. He will not quench the faith of the burning wick. He will heal. He will not destroy he will strengthen our faith. He will not quench it. And this is, this is really consistent with, with Jesus' own words, which we, we've sung and which we've heard in our, confession, our call to confession from Matthew 11, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, our souls find rest in Jesus. We come to him in our weakness, and he gives us his strength. So the most dangerous thing we can do, and the most natural thing we want to do, is stay away from him, but that is the worst thing we can do. Our souls find rest in Jesus, and we come to him, we receive his strength. And it's so important for us to understand that coming to Jesus a bruised reed does not just consist of simply being bruised by others. We are often bruised by others. Or by being bruised by this fallen world. This is, this is a component of it, of course. But this is not the primary meaning of the bruising. When a Christian is bruised by others or, or the harsh reality of the fallen world, really our natural reaction is to, to, to cling to Christ. To, 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 to go to him because he's really the only one who can get us through the pain. And I've talked to, to many Christians. Many Christians who suffer tragedy. The death of a loved one or a life-threatening illness or, or loss of a job or financial uh, uncertainty. And they respond the same way. They say, I don't know how an unbeliever could go through this. It's hard enough when I'm clinging to Christ, when I'm feeling Christ sustaining me every step of the way. I feel his comfort. It's hard enough for me to do this. I don't know how an unbeliever can go through this without him. Now, the important thing that we hear, see, these bruised reads, is to realize that the bruising is a self-inflicted bruising. It's bruising because of our sin, the faintly burning wick of, of our faith is, 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 is weak as, as a, cons- a consequence of our disobedience to God. And it could be the neglect of doing what he commands, neglect of the means of grace, what we are doing now, of prayer, of reading scripture, of participating in the sacraments, or it could come from actively doing what he forbids. Sin causes our bruising. Sin causes weak faith. And it's this sin and our knowledge of the sin that, that keeps us from the Lord, that keeps us from believing the truth of this verse. And I think it's really the last part of this verse, verse 3, that terrifies us. And this is probably the part that keeps us from coming to Christ. It's the part that, that we may actually feel nullifies the first part. And the last part says, he will faithfully bring forth justice. We know exactly what that means. See, if he will faithfully bring forth justice, we know we are in trouble. Because we are not just. I mean, a good good example of this. Say you're walking in in a bad neighborhood at night, right? And you're you're dangerous. It's scary. And then you see a police car. You see a policeman there. You feel feel a little comfortable. He's here. He's he's going to protect me. Now, think the same thing. You're driving down the highway, maybe 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. You see that same police car coming in another direction. You're not going to be comforted. You're going to be fearful, See, the innocent have no fear for, for justice. They welcome it. But it's the guilty, the guilty that fear justice. And my friends, the bruised reeds, they are guilty. They know they are guilty. So they fear that Christ's justice will break them. They fear that their faintly burning wick will be snuffed out by that justice. Even, even as Christians, we sin. Even as Christians, we sin. And when we do that, we feel like, oh, God's done with me. I can't go back to God. i got to hide from him. i got to hide my sin. And that is the worst thing we can do. Because here's the miraculous truth. Here's the miraculous truth. There is no contradiction in this verse. Christ is both gentle and he is healing and, 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 and faithful and, and, and gentle. And he brings forth justice. Both are true. He is gentle and he is just. See, so we tend to think in either or. We, we think that you're either tender to sinners by, by ignoring their sin, which is unjust, or you're tough on the sin and focus on justice, which is not tender, which will break the bruised reading, quench the faintly burning wick. But in this verse, in this verse we see this, this contradiction, in this seemingly contradiction, we see the gospel. See, the gospel, the gospel, and the gospel only is where God is both just and compassionate. God is just that that sin will be forgiven, or for sin will be punished, but he is compassionate because the sin is punished in Christ and not in the sinner. Because the sinner, by faith, is united to Christ. And God then credits to the sinner the righteousness of Christ. And this is why the Lord is tender and gentle to the believer, because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. See, every single sin committed in the past, in the present, in the future, even the sins that we are committing at this moment, if you are a believer, they are covered by the blood of Christ. Every sin was fully and perfectly punished in Christ on the cross. And not only that, that's only half the gospel. The other half is the glorious reality of the gospel that is the perfect obedience, the perfect righteousness of Christ is applied to the believer. So when God looks at us as a believer, he sees not the sins, not the wretchedness of it, he sees the perfect righteousness of his own son, in whom his soul delights. And this is why Christ is tender to the bruised reed. This is why he will never break that bruised reed, but rather he will heal it. Rather he will restore it. This is why he never quenches that smoldering faith, that, 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 but, but he sustains it, he strengthens it. And he strengthens it with his strength. Because when he looks on us, he sees Christ. He sees Christ. He sees his beloved son. And my friends, this this fact should bring us tremendous comfort. Each one of us, each one of us, even after we're born again, even after we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we continually sin. We continually fail to live up to, to the requirements of the law. And this sin bruises us. It takes away our witness. It takes away our, our usefulness for the kingdom work and, and to bring God glory. It takes away our joy. It can even reduce our faith to, to that of a faintly burning wick. And my friends, these things are bad. There's no doubt about it. We, we should strive daily to put our sin to death. We should, this should be a, a daily battle as long as we live. We can never let down our guard. We can never make peace with our sin. Nevertheless, we continue to sin. We don't want to, we strive not to, but we still do. And when we do, when we do, there is a temptation to run away. There's a temptation to hide from God. Just as our first parents, Adam and Eve, did. When they ate the forbidden fruit, they hid from God. And Satan will whisper. This is the, Satan will whisper lies into our ears. Satan will tell us that we've blown it. Satan will tell us that God is angry at us, that God is going to destroy us, that you'd better hide from him. That you got to continue the deception. You, gotta, you cannot admit your sin. You cannot confess. Forgiveness is not possible. That's what Satan's going to lie to us. And this is a lie. The truth is, the truth is that we are just as loved by God when we sin as when we're obedient. Just think about it. We're just as loved when we sin or when we're obedient. When he looks at us, he sees his beloved son Christ. He can never abandon Christ and he can never abandon us. So far from fleeing from God, the most beneficial thing we do is to flee to him, to cling to him by faith. Scripture promises that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. This very verse promises that as we come to him, as Bruce reads with smoldering faith, he promises that he will never break us. He will never snuff out that faith. Rather, he will nurture us. He will comfort us. He will strengthen us. He will not excuse our sin. He will not condone our sin. He will not encourage us to indulge our sin. Rather, he will give us his power. He will enable us to overcome our sin. Isn't that amazing? He will enable us to become more like Christ. That's amazing. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't excuse us. He makes us better. Amazing. And verse 4 then shows us the outcome. Verse 4 is is the guarantee promise that he has the strength to do what he has promised and that he will overcome our sin, overcome our brokenness. Look at verse 4. It says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. See, my friends, Christ has the power. Christ has the, the capacity to accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. He will not grow faint. There's no weakness in him. Christ is not overwhelmed by this fallen world. Christ is not overwhelmed by our sin. He is steadfast. He is immovable. In this, we can be certain. But not only will Christ not grow faint, the verse says he will not be discouraged. And if you're using the ESV, you may notice a footnote that says the word discouraged could also be translated as bruised. Hmm, We've heard that before, right? Same word. Same word we have in verse 3. And I personally like this translation of bruised better because I think it makes clear connection between the two verses. See, in verse 3, the bruise reads that Christ does not break. The bruising represents those who are bruised due to their sin. In verse 4, by saying that Christ will not be bruised, we see that Christ will not and cannot be bruised by his own sin because he is perfectly sinless. So why is this important? See, if Christ were not sinless, then all bets would be off. If Christ were not sinless, he would not even be able to save himself, let alone his people. A sinless savior is essential. Is essential for the gospel. And this verse, as well as all of scripture, testifies to this fact. The next part of this verse says, till he has established justice on the earth. And this shows that Christ will succeed. The gospel will succeed. He will establish justice on the earth. That justice is that every injustice will be punished. Every wrong will be made right. Every sin will be punished. And that punishment for God's people was suffered by Christ on the cross. You will never suffer it personally. But that punishment for those who reject Christ's offer atonement, it will be paid by them personally and eternally in the torments of hell. So those now who belong to Christ are no longer limited to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is now open to all nations. It is now open to the Gentiles. God's grace and justice goes out to all the earth. And as such, his elect from the four corners of the earth respond in faith. And those who were once far off, those who who once did not know the Lord, who who were not privileged to to know his grace... They are described in this verse as the coastlands. And look at the beautiful promise to the coastland. Promise given in the last line of this verse. So these are the people who did not know the Lord. It says, in the coastlands wait for his law. So what does this mean? What does this mean, wait for his law? Well, I think this describes that soul that is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. This is the person who is born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and is a new creation in Christ. This person loves God's law. They love it because it describes God, it describes his holy character. And while we are not able to totally obey this law in its full extent, while we are in the flesh, we want to. We want to obey it. We recognize that it is good. We long to be holy. We strive with our entire being to honor God and to be like Christ. This is what this verse means. This is the attitude that God promises to his people. He promises to give them a love for his law. So all of this describes Christ. We see in this passage the benefits that we personally obtain because of Christ. In this description of Christ, we have have unspeakable comfort. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we're safe in Christ. We know that that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. That nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not even our own sin. Not even our own sin. We need to remember that. We can't say, I sinned, I've blown it. God can save me from anything else. We can't save me from our own sin. That is exactly what he wants to save us from. And because of this, we need not fear to come to him. Especially when we sin. In fact, I would say we should come to him especially when we sin. And we know, we, we are guaranteed by his infallible word that he will not break us. That when he comes to us as a reed, he will not break us. He, and we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he will not quench our faintly burning wick of faith. And this is the amazing comfort that each of us as Christians must hold on to. Because each one of us will have a time that we are tempted. A time that we are tempted to hide from Christ. When we will be so ashamed of our sin that we will refuse to come to him. And we will forego the only hope. The only hope that we ever have to defeat this persistent sin. The only hope that we have to to heal our bruised reed. This is our prime application. But there's one other application that I want to briefly make here. I want to look at the, the call that we have as those united to Christ. To imitate Christ. While this passage is primarily about Christ, it describes Christ. It also, in a sense, is about us. It describes the Christian. And I want to briefly run through these four verses and show how they apply to us, how they apply to those who are united to Christ. Starting at verse one, if you're a Christian, you too, you too are God's servant. Our lives are not our own, they belong to God. We were redeemed, we were purchased at a price, a price of the precious blood of Christ. And as such, we are God's servants. Living not to do our will, but to do the will of Him, to bring Him glory. And as God's servants, we act not on our own, not on our own power, but in His power. God upholds us, as we see in this verse. And we are His chosen, we are His elect. Yes, we do choose Him and and love Him and follow Him, but that is only because He chose us first. He loved us first, He called us first. And this is incredibly comfort because we know that, that while our own will will fail when we sin, we know that he can never fail. Our security is in him, not in ourselves. He is holding us not by the strength of us holding on to him. We are held in the grip of his grace. And as beloved children, united to Christ by faith, we know that God's soul delights in us. I mean, just think about that for a moment. If you're a believer, God delights in you. God delights in you. You have the privilege. You have the the privilege to make God happy, to bring him joy, to put a smile on his face. What an incredible thought. It even gets even better. As believers, God has placed his spirit, his Holy Spirit, the, the third divine person of the Trinity. God has placed his spirit on each one of us who is in Christ. Again, this is mind-boggling to think that the the infinite God is inside of us. What an incredible thought. What an incredible privilege. And as Christians, we have a mission. We have a commission, a great commission. Just like Jesus, we are to bring forth justice to the nations. So what does this look like? Well, part of this mission is is individual. We are in, in our sphere of influence. We are to work for justice true biblical justice not social justice as defined by a godless culture seeking to foster division rather than unity but we are to work for justice as god has defined justice in his word but we also know that ultimate justice comes from god and will be established by god it will come when when every sin is punished either in christ on the cross or by the sinner in hell and my friends now is the time of grace And as such, we are to share the good news of the gospel with all we come into contact with and to show them that they too can escape God's judgment. They too can receive his grace. They can be united to Christ and have their their sins punished in Christ and not in themselves. And in fulfillment of this commission, we are to follow the example of our Savior. We are to imitate him as he's described in verse 2. We are not to cry aloud or lift our voices in the street. We are not to take matters into our own hands. We are not to promote ourselves. We are to trust in God. We are to be humble like Christ was humble. Our success solely relies on him and not our own actions. And probably the most difficult of all is that we are to treat the weak, we are to treat the hurting, and the sinners as Christ treated them. Verse 3 should describe us. We must not break the bruised reed. We must not quench the faintly burning wick. We must seek to restore sinners, not to destroy them. And sadly, sadly, our first reaction when we hear news of sin by a fellow believer is to break that bruised reed. But rather, we must encourage the faith. Encourage the faith of those broken down by their sin and, and questioning what, what is the point of the, of the Christian life. And We must always point them to Christ. We must not quench even the faintest spark of faith, but help them to build it up. And if we're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit and and of prayer, we will not grow faint. We will not become discouraged. We will not become bruised or overcome by our own sin, as we see described in verse 4. But rather, we will be used by God to establish his justice in the earth and to instill a love for God and for His law, for all those, even those who don't yet know Him. And my friends, I can't think of, I can't think of a more glorious, a more joyful, a more fulfilling calling that we can have in this fallen world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray for those bruised reeds. I pray for any who are are struggling, struggling under their own sin, struggling under the sin of others, Father, I pray that you will bring them peace. Lord, they will come to you. And I pray, Father, that you will give each of us, each of us the humility, each of us the the, the tenderness of our Savior in dealing with fellow brothers and sisters, that we will not break them, we will not quench their faith, but we, just like our Savior does for us, we will give them the strength. We will point them to you. And Father give us the privilege give, give us the privilege of proclaiming your name to those who do not know you to those who are lost. Father we pray that you will be glorified in all we do and say. It's in Jesus name and for his glory we pray. Amen.